for our scripture reading this morning. The ushers are still picking up, but we'll go ahead. I'll be reading from Psalm 50, 1 through the end of the chapter. Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Now for your sacrifices, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You, keep, you give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own, own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice as his sacrifice glorifies me to one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Good morning to each one. You can open your Bibles to First uh, Peter. <clears throat> I'm beginning a sermon series in the book of First Peter, and so uh, this morning is going to have uh, two particular parts. Uh, one will sort of do a, a flyover over the book and ask the entire book a number of questions uh, just to familiarize ourselves, familiarize ourselves with the book uh, and familiarize ourselves with the author, the people it was to, and some of the main themes that are in it. And then we'll dig into uh, verses 1 and 2 as a um, kind of a sermon text. It's good of us uh, when we set out here to ask a number of questions of a text. Often it's easy to read a verse or two or even a chapter and not pay attention to what the entire book is saying. This book in its context in its historical context, in its textual context, says certain things. And so 
if we read the individual verses without understanding the whole, then it, we can get misguided. So we'll spend a little time here at the beginning uh, looking at that. First of all, uh, the first question we could ask of the text is, who wrote it? Um, and with the name First Peter, uh, we would assume that it was the Apostle Peter. And that is widely believed to be the case. Uh, there are some who uh, believe otherwise. But I think we would uh, agree that the Apostle Peter, the disciple who was at the right hand of Jesus during his earthly ministry, uh, wrote this book. And the evidence that we have for this is as follows. Uh, for one, the style and tone of the book is one of confidence, of deep conviction, of hope. The exuberant and positive Peter can be seen in the writings. Now, not necessarily the same Peter that we see in the gospel who is, who is uh, over-aggressive, who is probably a bit boisterous, um, who operates on a lot of uh, kind of at-the-moment sorts of emotions. But the Peter we see here is, is probably a little wiser uh, than the Peter that we see in the Gospels. The second evidence is that there are many ideas and quotes that can be traced specifically to the words of Christ and are only recounted by somebody who had a close affinity with Christ. And so we see Peter's reference to the church as the elect is referred, is traced directly to Jesus' references. The idea in chapter 1 of seeing, uh, or excuse me, of not seeing but yet believing, is a direct reference to Jesus in Mark 13. And Jesus referred to Peter as the rock after his resurrection. And Peter refers to the believers as living stones. Uh, further study as well will find many similarities and many similar attitudes and many, much similar language uh, between Jesus and Peter. Um, some of the, the, the texts that I was reading had you know, three or four pages of fairly direct links to what Jesus said and what Peter said. And also, if we look at some of Peter's sermons in Acts, uh, we see some very, very close similarities uh, to the arguments that we see in this book. There are some who think that uh, Peter, or the book of 1 Peter, was written by uh, sort of a ghostwriter. Um, it is said that Peter had a group of disciples or people of his inner circle, and some scholars say that it was one of these that wrote this letter. They were very familiar with Peter. They understood his language. And so um, they, try to, they make that case as well. The main reason behind that is they say there's a, a mastery of Greek in 1 Peter that maybe Peter himself wouldn't have had uh, because he was not necessarily a highly learned man. Um, and that's kind of the main, the main argument against Peter being the author. Um, but I th my personal feeling is, is that the, the evidence is enough to say that Peter was the author. The second question we would ask of this book is who is the audience? We say things differently uh, compared to the audience that we're speaking to. And so it's, it's good to consider 
Who were these people that he was speaking to? And in 1 Peter, we don't have to uh, dig too far to find that out. In the very first verse, he singles out his audience as specific people in specific places. Now, we shouldn't assume that that excludes everyone else um, and that the teaching is only specifically for those people. But we should consider their situation as it will help us understand his message better. Uh, the audience he states are the elect exiles of the dispersion. And he gives five specific locations found in Asia Minor uh, or modern-day Turkey. In referring to them as the elect, he is using uh, biblical terminology to describe the believers. Um, so in the New Testament, we have Peter and the or, or Jesus and the apostles referring to groups of Christians and individual Christians as the elect. Uh, in the Old Testament, the term we see used is that of being chosen. Um, and so these point to people who are believers uh, in Christ. And so by saying elect, he's saying that this is to believers. In calling them exiles of the dispersion, he's referring to their status in society. The dispersion is a reference that a Jewish person, person would understand. And it's due to the scattering of the Jewish, of the Jewish people um, in the latter part of the Old Testament. And they referred to them as those that were dispersed, or the dispersion. And so Peter wasn't necessarily pointing out just Jewish people here, uh, but he was using that term as a metaphor to say, you are like the Jews in the dispersion. You are out of your home area. You are not native to this world. And, and that's really not much different than the place that we ourselves are in. If you think about what we believe about the world, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about Christ, those ideas are not welcome in the public sphere. The ideas of people being condemned as sinners. Uh, in, in the Sunday school period, we were talking about God's righteous judgment. Those ideas are not welcome in our public sphere. And so... There's a sense in which if we were extremely forthright with those ideas, that to a level we would be ostracized, we would be set apart and seen as those types of people. One thing to note about some of the geographical areas is that uh, they experienced persecution somewhat before the Christians in Italy and in Greece. Um, there were some governors in that particular area that started some, some perse persecution before the time of Nero. Uh, it would have been kind of the first intentional state persecution of Christians. And so we had some initial persecution there. But they were also living in a very pagan environment. Um, so they would have been extremely different in that sense as well. This letter is meant as an encouragement in the face of persecution, and we see that theme of hope and of future glory developed throughout. Another thing to note about these areas is that 
other than Galatia, uh, they would have been what's considered uh, second-wave Christian churches. So uh, the Apostle Paul would have went through Asia Minor and gone to certain churches, certain towns, and you may call them first-wave churches. The other four, other than Galatia, were churches that were established by people who, were, who came to Christ to the Apostle Paul's ministry. And then they went from those locations elsewhere. So in a sense, they were a second-wave uh, church. There's actually an interesting um, understanding that Paul had. I think he intended to go to some of these areas, but, it, but Acts says that the Spirit of God prevented him from doing so. Um, and so the, the Spirit of God was leading Paul to specific areas, but then he led other people from those areas to evangelize these other ones. The order of those places doesn't necessarily mean anything other than that it was a very likely route at which the person who delivered the message could have taken as he carried uh, the book. Another question we should ask of a text is, at what time period in history uh, does it show up? And in my reading, it's, it's assumed that the book was written around the year 65, uh, and this would have been just before the persecution of the church by Nero. Um, and it's likely that that persecution claimed the life of the Apostle Peter. And so it would have been very shortly uh, before his death that he wrote these two books. The second question we should ask of the entire, or the, the final question we should ask, is what is the overall message of the book? And as we, as we, look, at, as we look at the entire book, the overall message, and there's, there's a couple, but the primary ones... Is, is one of hope. The message of the gospel is spelled out in its eternal glory as the hope for those who are suffering under persecution. Paul begins in chapter 1 with doctrine, or the right understanding of God and His Word. And in the remainder of the book, he gives practical instructions on how that doctrine is worked out in daily life. As you scan the book, uh, notice how many times you see passages begin with words like so, as, likewise, finally. These words point to just simple deductive reasoning or that uh, this is the doctrine, and because this is the doctrine, then this is how you live. Um, it's, a very, it's a very simple in its logic as compared to some of Paul's writing, which... Um, it can get quite complex. Uh, Paul used very simple, easy-to-understand logic. He says, this is the doctrine, and because this is a doctrine, then this is how you live. Another key idea is the descriptions um, that we see of God's people and the what they should look like. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel were the chosen or the elect people of God. And they were clear definitions of what that chosen people should be. Peter is developing what the New Testament chosen people should be and how they should be identified. Another overarching theme is that of privilege versus duty. In the first two chapters, we see Peter describing some of the privileges 
that we have as believers. We see the new birth in, in the first chapter in verse 3. We see an inheritance that is imperishable in verse 4. We see the availability of grace in Christ in, in uh, chapter 1, verses 13 to 25. We see the privilege of being chosen by God in the first part of chapter 1 and also in chapter 2, verses 4 to 9. And then the rest of the book lays out the responsibilities or the duties that come with those privileges. We see subjection to God. So if we are elect of God, if we are believers, then we are subject to God. It says that we are to absorb evil in, in chapter 3, verse 9. It says that we are to be zealous for good works in chapter 3, verse 13. It promotes hospitality in chapter 4, verse 9. And we could go on. There are many directives to how a Christian should live because of the privileges that he has in Christ Jesus. Hopefully that gives you uh, maybe some hunger to read through the entire book here a couple times in the next couple weeks. Um, it kind of allows some of those things to coalesce in your mind. But now for a, a specific sermon text, I'd like us to look at verses 1 and 2 uh, there in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'll read. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Shall we have a word of prayer? Father, pray that as we consider this text, that you would open our hearts and minds to hear your words and to allow them to penetrate uh, into our soul. Thank you for Christ and his sacrifice, and may that be uh, brought alive as we look at this passage. We pray this through Christ. This concise statement is packed with the core of gospel truth. In this little sentence, we see the sovereignty of God, we see the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and we see the sacrifice of the Son. In that is a clear description of the Trinity and their particular rules. For our understanding, I'd like to break down the sentence a little bit and attempt to follow Peter's thought path. The first part describes the people as elect, and the second part explains how and why that is possible. You could simply read the, the verse this way as well. To those who are elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with His blood. And you could further divide that out into three individuals. Sentences. You could say that Christians um, are elect by the foreknowledge of God. They are elect to be sanctified by the Spirit. 
and they are elect for obedience to Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, I'm sure as you've seen, kind of the key word in the middle of all of that is this word, elect. Now, in the Christian faith, there are few concepts or ideas as controversial as election and its cousin foreknowledge. In fact, among many Christians, the term elect either does not exist or is a very dirty word. It conjures up images of an iron-fisted God, obliviously sending some to heaven and some to hell, irregardless of them just simply making that choice for them. It is made to represent the enslavement of man to a despot God. In our time here, I hope to deconstruct those ideas and present to you election as a doctrine that we can and should treasure. To begin with, we cannot escape the fact that one of the most common words used in our scriptures to refer to the church or believers is the term elect. Jesus used the term, and the apostles used the term. In fact, it appears 18 times in the New Testament and is almost always used to describe either a group of believers or an individual believer. As we consider those passages, it's clear that a Christian should consider themselves as one of the elect. Or eternity will end badly for you. Matthew 24, the words of Jesus, he says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now, I'll assume that most of us here being professing Christian, Christians, we would prefer to be in the group of the elect. In the Old Testament, we don't see the word elect, but we see the word chosen very often. The people of Israel are described as God's chosen people. And if you look at Old Testament characters from Abraham to Jacob to Moses to David to Hosea to Samson to others, there is a clear and almost universal divine choosing of these men before they follow God. None of them are selected because of their merit. And none of them comes to God and says, pick me. In fact, we see quite the opposite in the case of Moses, where God chose him. And he says, no, God, not me. I can't talk. And others who, in a sense, rejected the choosing of God, but he still used them um, to do his will. Acts 13, 17 says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So what does election or choosing mean? Very simply, to be elect means to be chosen for salvation by the Father. When you bring God's foreknowledge into the picture, 
Biblical election clearly means a person is not a believer or a father, a follower of God, unless our Creator God chooses him to be. Now, I'm sure most of you are wincing at that statement, and your internals are rebelling. It's natural that they should. And for a number of reasons, I think we have that reaction to that statement. I think one of the reasons is that we have had a misunderstanding of this doctrine. We have been, in a sense, taught poorly. One explanation that we're familiar with is that God knows all, and so he elects those who who will choose him according to his foreknowledge. But that does a couple things. First of all, it ignores the fact that God's foreknowledge or God knowing in the Bible has the idea of planning. Second of all, it places God in a time-bound structure. God is not bound by time. And so we're making God go forward and backward through history. And secondly, it ultimately places the will of God in subjection to the will of man. God makes up his will after men make up their will. But I think that's a secondary reason why we reject election. The primary reason that I feel we struggle internally with this is that in each of us is a rebel nature trying to make a place for ourselves. Each of us is wired to hold on to the last thread of our personal worth. It is our nature to doubt God. It is our nature to not trust Him. It is our nature to want to claim some level of responsibility for our salvation. And a common reaction we may have is that A good God could not be that way. But we see God responding to some of these claims, to some of these ideas. In Psalm 50, 21, that Brother Keith read, it says, You thought that I was one like yourself. You're attempting to fashion me into a God like you. Job 38 says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And chapters 38 and 41 are a continuing assault on human ability, to which the end of it, after God stops talking, Job says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Romans 9 says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Other passages you can consider are Matthew 20, John 15. 
As represented in these passages, God is clearly sovereign and in control of his creation, and his choosing is to be honored. Now, I think a representative election, as I have given, is often taken quickly into what we call fatalism, where we are simply robots walking a pre-planned path. The language of Romans states clearly that God as creator is ultimately sovereign. And the witness of Scripture is that he can be trusted with that sovereignty. But we humans have a clear responsibility to intentionally follow him. Psalms 50 again, interestingly, two verses down from the one I read earlier, says, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. In 1 Peter 1, 9, a little later on in our passage, says, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So how do we place these two seemingly incongruous or incompatible truths together? It seems a paradox that God as sovereign creator orders everything about us, but yet we are responsible for ourselves. And I think in our history, we've tended to either grab one or grab the other. And we see those two paths diverging. You have the people who will say, it's all about you and your choices and your everyday life. Choose well, choose good, and God will save you because of that. But then you have the people that say, God chose you and there's just nothing you need to do. You just, God chose you and you can't change that. And he didn't choose the other person and they can't change that. But I, I think we're unfair to reject both one of them and hold on to the other. Somehow we need to hold them both and understand that the bridge doesn't meet in the middle in our minds because, as Psalms 50 says, you're trying to make me one of you. I'm higher than you. I'll quote J.C. Wenger in response to this quandary. Nevertheless, it is necessary to place the responsibility for the rejection of Christ squarely on the shoulders of those who refuse to yield to Christ and to attribute the surrender of faith on the part of believers to the electing love and mercy of a gracious God. Man is fully responsible for his choices and fully deserves death and hell. Every single one of us is in that position. How many of us would propose that we are good enough for God to choose? How many of us would say that I've done well enough we think that, we don't understand the pure, crystal clear, perfect holiness of God. The holiness that can stand no sin. 
not one iota. His presence is perfectly holy. And he says that no sin will enter his presence. Zero, none. And the idea that I've used here a number of times is, is, is let's take Jesus, Jesus' description of morality that we see on the Sermon of the Mount. And let's hold that up. And let's go to the first one, and to the second one, and to the third one. And we will fail every single one, every single day. That's who we are. Our holiness is nothing compared to His. And if we don't have a high view of God's holiness, then we place a low view on our responsibility in our sins. But God doesn't leave us there. In His grace, He reaches down with the message of the gospel. And He turns hearts of stone, hearts that have rejected Him, into hearts of beating flesh. This is the glory of election. This is the glory of the gospel. And you still may ask, but what's, what's my role in that? Again, 1 Peter says in verse 9 that you believe in Him and you rejoice with joy. We are to believe and to obey. It is our response to God. Hopefully you are okay with the bit of mystery that remains in the middle. Clearly we cannot and will not fully know until we know Christ as he truly is. The passage moves on. What is the point and the purpose of this election? The remainder of this verse states that we are saved for sanctification by the Spirit, obedience to Christ, and to be sprinkled by Jesus' blood. First of all, we are saved to be sanctified. We are not saved to remain in our sins. We are not saved to remain in rebellion. We are not called out from the world to continue to live in the world. We're called out to be sanctified by the work of the Spirit in our hearts. We are not simply forgiven of our sin, but we are given a new nature that grows and matures as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and minds and transforms our lives closer to the image of the perfect Son. Ephesians 5.26 says that He might sanctify her, referring to the church, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word. The Holy Spirit and God's Word are the sanctifying presence in our life. Second, we are saved for obedience to Christ and His Word. The life of a saved man is to be marked by obedience. One of the major arguments against election is that it doesn't matter what I do. If I'm elected, I'm in. And if I'm not elected, I'm out. And, and that's, I think, a flippant understanding of what it means. Peter clearly states 
that obedience must follow salvation. He restates this again in in chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. The sanctification is borne out by our obedience to God's Spirit and to His Word and to Christ Himself. And the third purpose is that we are elect for the sprinkling of His blood. Hebrews 10 states this best. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We see Moses, after the people accept the covenant, sprinkling them with the blood of the sacrifice. And this idea of sprinkling points to the fact that Jesus is our sacrifice. He's also our high priest. And we are made holy by his blood. We are made holy when we accept his sacrifice, accept his shedding of blood. So each of us can make no claim to our own righteousness in any way or form. It is God who moves in our hearts. And the question we must ask ourselves is, did we, did we create in our hearts the fondness toward God? Did we create in our hearts the desire to know God? Did we create in our conscience the, the penetrating guilt for sin? Are those things that happened within us? Or did God reach down and by His Spirit convict and call and in that calling we respond in obedience and in faith and repentance we accept the sacrifice of christ and we obey and we allow the spirit's work to continue in our lives In conclusion, I ask you again to consider God's sovereignty and His call on your life. If you are a believer, then God has clearly acted in your favor. He's clearly acted in a way that brought you to salvation. Evil man is responsible for his choices. We are responsible for our unbelief. But if we are saved, if Jesus' amazing work has brought about salvation in our hearts, then the glory is entirely His. Entirely due to His purpose, to His glory in our world. Shall we pray? Father, this morning as we reflect over these words, Father, may you again renew in our hearts a sense of gratitude for the work that you have done in each of our hearts. 
Father, we are unwilling and unworthy without you. We have in the past and in many times in the present seek after our own will, seek after our own glory. Father, may you call us to repentance and may we repent and seek obedience and seek faith, faith and seek the sanctifying power of your spirit in our hearts. May your truth penetrate our minds and our hearts. And Father, if there is any good in our lives, we know that it comes from you. And we give you the praise and the glory for that. We pray this through Christ.